Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. Renewable energy sources have long been pressed on the fact that most can only supply power for certain portions of the day. But what if you could combine multiple renewable technologies into a refinery that had round-the-clock output? I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Marlena Haddad and I speak with Craig Wood, CEO of VAST, and Guillermo Sierra, VP of Strategic Initiatives at Neighbors Energy Transition Corp. The pair announced a $250 million business combination in February. Craig explains how VAST is fine-tuning its concentrated solar power platform to work in conjunction with traditional solar, batteries, and hydrogen to put forward a new kind of renewable project. Guillermo also tells us how Neighbors Energy is leveraging its existing network to develop strategic benefits to VAST through this SPAC deal and beyond. Take a listen. For those who have listened through the entirety of our podcast series may be familiar with concentrated solar power from our conversations with earlier SPAC targets, but for the uninitiated, Craig, how is CSP different from what we might consider a traditional photovoltaic plant? Yes, yeah, so Nick, the technologies are really quite different. Traditional photovoltaics use essentially semiconductors to turn photons from the sun directly into electricity. Concentrating solar is different. We use mirrors and we and we use them to um, gather and concentrate the sun's energy. And then we capture that energy as heat. And the heat is important because unlike chemical energy or chemical storage means in batteries that you might hook up to a traditional photovoltaic system, our system actually stores energy as heat and heat is a very effective of energy storage. We're able to use the heat to generate electricity via a steam turbine um, so we can put out long duration storage uh, renewable energy that's that's quite cost effective, but also we can use heat directly in industrial processes or we can combine heat and power to deliver very cheap energy into green fuels production processes. So it's it's different in its nature, um, and that means it can also be used um, in different applications. Yeah, interesting. And, and Guillermo, what makes CSB a particularly interesting technology to invest in in a moment like this? So listen, Nick, part of, part of what makes concentrated solar attractive to us is it gets to what we feel humanity is shortest of. On the one hand, we need dispatchable and base load seeking sources of energy. We need that energy to be reliable. We need those energy sources to be of scale, scalable, and of utility scale, which are really two different things. And we're frankly not only seeking the storage to get rid of the intermittency, but to some extent is the heat that we see as a critical critical input into all sorts of fuels that start with hydrogen, right? So whether it be for the production of hydrogen, heat is particularly efficient in its generation, as a source, but also as you continue building a hydrocarbon effort at hydrogen, whether it be methanol all the way to SAF and other synthetic fuels. We think, frankly, heat and power and dispatchable power are going to be the key. To us, it it follows the full strategy that we've had into investing into sources of that type of energy source, energy input, whether it be geothermal or CSP, complementary, fundamentally targeting what we think humanity needs the most in today's world. And could you run through the active projects that you have at the moment and just how close each is to commercialization? Sure, Marlene. So there's three active projects that are co-located on a single site in a place called Port Augusta, which is in South Australia. The first and most boring of those is a 140-megawatt lithium-ion battery, boring only because we're doing it essentially as just a commercial exercise to develop that project, and we expect that that we'll be selling our share of that project rather than continuing to own it over time. The most important project for us is what we call VS1, VAR Solar 1, 
which is a 30 megawatt steam turbine with eight hours of thermal storage. That project is expected to reach FID in the fourth quarter of this year. And then it's a two-year build with the duration really set by um, the, the time it takes to purchase, manufacture, ship, install, and then commission the steam turbine. So we're looking at First Energy, late 2025, but really commercial operations in 2026. The third project, what we call SM1 Solar Methanol 1, is trailing along about six months behind VS1. And the reason for that is really quite simple. Um, SM1 uses a combination of some of the dispatchable electricity, but importantly, some of the heat that is produced by VS1. That's why they're co-located, because heat doesn't travel very well. And so it doesn't make any sense for us to have SM1 ready before VS1, the primary energy source um, is, is ready and available to provide that energy. So really, we're looking at FID for SM1 in the middle of next year, so the middle of 2024, and then we'd be looking at first methanol coming out of that project in 2026. And you consider your designs to be CSP 3.0. Would you be able to walk us through the evolution of CSP designs and what advantages yours has over the previous generations? Yep, sure. So CSP 1.0 is what uh, people in the industry call parabolic trough technology. So this was a technology that was originally um, developed and built at utility scale in the US. And indeed, those plants have been running for decades. Some of them are actually in the process of being decommissioned at the moment, um, given they've reached end of life. That system uses parabolic mirrors that are shaped like troughs, hence the name. And they follow the sun from east to west um, and they capture the energy actually in a line focusing system. They're very bankable and reliable. There's about six and a half gigawatts built globally. But what uh, has held the deployment back is that there is a fundamental temperature limitation of about 400 Celsius um, because the fluid that they use to collect the energy is a a mineral oil and it's got that temperature limit. Ultimately, by the time you've taken the heat at that temperature, put it through storage and used it to create steam to spin a turbine, you end up with relatively inefficient power cycles. Um, And so... Fundamentally, the energy is expensive. What people tried to do about a decade ago with CSPV2 was move to what are called a central tower design. Assuming most of your listeners are in the US, if you fly them over the, a bunch of states in the West, you can see those plants very clearly outside of Nevada and in California. Those plants did away with the thermal oil um, and they basically tried to use the salt, that is the storage means, to also collect the energy directly from the sun. So simplifying the system by having three working fluids rather than two. Very seductive logic. The only issues have been that uh, the designs have been shown to not be particularly reliable. And that ultimately is is due to a mismatch between the degree to which clouds um, can change the amount of solar energy very quickly. I mean, clouds come and go with the wind, but the, the salt systems themselves are very slow moving in order to get the necessary heat transfer. So Um, In simple terms, you've ended up with big temperature spikes um, that have hit the downstream equipment and that's created problems and they've been very difficult to to actually manage properly. What we've done with CSP 3.0 is um, combine the best of both worlds. We've taken, we've stuck with a three fluid system, so similar to a trough plant. We've kept the modularity of the trough plants and between those two things, the fluid choice and the modularity, you end up with a, a high level of controllability and ultimately that turns into reliability. However, we've all also uh, recognise the need to move to a tower system. And so what we've done is um, created a modular tower system where 
We have modules that are point focusing onto the tower, and then we link the, the receiver at the top of those towers. We link those together by using a liquid sodium metal heat transfer fluid. And so that's really the, the key differentiator between our technology and previous generations is the use of sodium as the HTF and the, the fact that that enables, it unlocks the, the modular tower design. And it's, it's really that modularity that delivers the, the cost, performance, and uh, risk benefits that we see. As we thought about it from our perspective and neighbors, the combination of the scalability, the modularity, and the sodium loop that actually, that actually fixes some of the fundamental issues that any of the previous technologies have had in their deployment. And when we saw the results of the uh, the plant that up that synchronized with the grid and demonstration scale that Craig and the team synchronized back in 2018, and we saw the operating results of the three years that operated. We really saw the power of this new system, right? I mean, there there is a a fundamental shift in economic and and efficiency out of this new this new this new approach. It's, it's kind of an evolutionary approach to this technology that was fascinating. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and looking, you know, further into that sort of the business side of each project, it appears that the vast takes the largest chunk of their revenue per project at sort of the construction stage with smaller recurring annual revenues coming from software and fees over time. Do you aim to position vast to be taking in mostly recurring revenues at some point uh, or should we expect its revenue to mostly follow the pace of new projects getting developed over time? Over time as we do more and more projects, I think it'll it'll transition. So Certainly, your observation that it, at least initially will be focused on being an OEM, a supplier of solar arrays into the projects that we develop, that is accurate. And the ability to you know, take a sensible margin for supply of those components is important to us because it means that we'll be moving into a world where we're cash generative pretty early on. Over time, as you've identified, the OEM revenues, sorry, the O&M, I should say, uh, operations and maintenance revenues, they will build steadily. You know, the reality is that we are the world leaders in the use of sodium in CSP and the procedures for operating the plant in a safe and effective fashion are the procedures that we have developed and perfected at our 1.1 dem uh, megawatt demonstration plant that was grid connected and ran for 32 months down here in Australia. So we do believe that we need to be involved in the O&M. It's not as uh, lucrative a business as OEM supply, but as you've identified, it is an annuity business. And so over time, we expect that that will build. If you look at value over life of project, um, uh, it's actually, it is also a pretty valuable um, earning stream as is uh, the OEM revenues, but obviously it takes time for that to compound up. So the you know, long way of saying the mix will change over time and obviously having a nice blend of annuity revenue streams as well as you know more lumpy stuff that's linked to projects, uh, I think is a sensible thing to be doing. Yeah, and I think something that uh, a lot of investors are sort of watching a tiny bit of concern when it comes to any new technologies is just, you know, you know, having enough capital to make things work. But I thought it was interesting to point out, and I'd love to hear more detail on the way that VAST has actually secured a great deal of, uh, of state support from Australia for its projects. So, you know, can you talk about some of that support you've gotten and, and some of the upcoming projects and how that de-risks some of your, your next steps here? Different countries do this stuff in different ways, but ultimately what the, the, the approach that the Australian government and and it's you know it's bipartisan and it's been consistent now for more than a decade uh, the approach has been to really look at helping to bring technologies through and then to the extent that, that it's needed 
also assisting with the first deployments, the first commercial deployments through the form of whether it be grant funding or, or subsidised loans. So the way that's worked practically for VAST is that we've had a more than 10-year um, relationship with a, an organisation called the Australian Renewable Energy Agency or ARENA. It's similar to the RPE in the US from what I understand. ARENA has, they've, they've put funding um, into VAST projects, most notably the demonstration project, but that relationship has been is now set to continue through into VS1 and SM1. So talking about VS1 in particular, ARENA has approved grant funding of up to Australian dollars 65 million to put into VS1. And that sits alongside a separate concessional financing or concessional debt arrangement that's been announced from the federal government. So not ARENA, but um, a different part of the government. Um, of up to $110 million. So there's there's essentially $175 million Australian dollars of funding support available from the Australian government. Alongside that, VAST needs to put in $45 million Australian of equity, and that's one of the, the largest uses of proceeds of the process that we're currently working our way through. If I turn quickly to the methanol project, that's a slightly different arrangement. So last year, the Australian and the German governments actually created a program called Highgate, the Hydrogen German Australian Transition Initiative. And that was really a... Um, uh, it's a funding opportunity that's designed to take demonstration scale projects and get them built that use Australian renewables to create fuels that can then be taken to Germany and, and used to, to partly fuel the German transition. We applied to that program and were successful and we've received funding of up to 40 million Australian dollars. So 20 million from the Germans um, and 20 million from the Australian governments. Alongside that money, we obviously have to put some equity. So there's, uh, we announced about six weeks ago, German energy trading company called Mabenhaft are looking at taking 50% of the equity in the methanol project and potentially offtake. And we're still working to confirm the final source of the funding for the last 20 million. So back to your question, yes, we've received extensive support from the Australian and the German governments, but that support is really very carefully targeted and calculated Calibrated, given the nature of the projects that we're delivering. The way we thought about it from our side, for what it's worth, is kind of interesting, right? Because you've had a company being funded for 13 years of funding from the seller, as well as a number of, a number of governments, really, in, in getting to where they are today. Governments continuing to support the effort to build reference utility scale systems, and then effort that all of us are putting not only that, but also with the support of neighbors to figure out a way to help continue the development curve around new projects, whether it be in the United States because of neighbors' presence here and potentially our economics, or further into Middle East and other markets where neighbors and vast are present, where the sun makes sense, where, they, where the conditions make sense for some of these things to develop. Uh, key is making sure that, you know, over the future, you not only kind of get FID and COD on the projects in the current pipeline, but you're continuing to feed the pipeline with projects as fast as you can, leveraging the neighbor's platform as we got to some extent. Great. And I'm interested to hear how CSP compares to traditional solar or wind in terms of where the plants can be built and what are the ideal locations for your designs? There's a science-based answer and then there's a Google Maps-based answer. The, the simplest way to think about it, if you get on Google Maps and you open it up and you put it on satellite view and it's red, orange or yellow, generally speaking, CSP wins in terms of long duration uh, storage provision in those locations. If it's green, blue or white, 
CSP loses and there are other technologies that are going to be better. In the context of the US in particular, you know, most of California, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, and certainly West Texas, they're target locations that we'll be building in. In terms of the, the suitability of the sites, PV, can you can pretty much throw it up anywhere. You know, those utility scale plants are, are relatively, they're quite flexible in where they can go. We have slightly more nuanced siting criteria in particular because we need to drive many hundreds of thousands of piles a couple of metres into the ground. We do need to make sure that the, the soil is not too rocky, but we're relatively flexible other than that constraint. So not too hilly, not too rocky, near a transmission line and certainly great sunshine. They're, they're the sorts of things that we're looking for. And just going off of that, you've listed the Middle East and North America as your next priority regions for international expansion. Are there any other criteria that you look at aside from what you just mentioned or what makes the conditions there attractive for those projects? The Sunbelt countries are really the target for CSP. If you go and look at any of the integrated energy forecasts, whether it's from the IEA or IRENA, to a greater or lesser extent, all of those Sunbelt countries end up with CSP built at some point um, for electricity provision, but then obviously increasingly heat as well as the green fuels, um, those end up being all attractive markets. The reason why we're prioritising Australia, the US uh, and Saudi is really just bandwidth. The opportunity that's in front of us in terms of the market potential is, is simply enormous. And really the challenge for us as a business will be how do we scale as quickly as we can, but making sure to be able to deliver with the precision that we need in order to uh, you know, build the plants so that they work reliably. And then obviously um, we'll, we'll take the financial rewards that naturally flow from that. The US, I was talking to some people a little earlier today, you know, Australia is an obvious one for us. Um, it's our home market. The reality is the US is next because it's our new home. Uh, and the requirement for electricity as well as green fuels and the incentives provided by the Inflation Reduction Act are really significant. So that's why we like the US. The Middle East and Saudi are similar but a little different. So in those markets, yes, there's a need for electricity. Yes, there's interest in green fuels. Um, but particularly in Saudi, there's a really important requirement around desalination and the ability for our technology to provide heat to power desal is very interesting. Each of those markets, you know, the US and Saudi, the broader Middle East, they're going to be enormous. And that's the other part of it that's leading us um, to, to think about those markets in that way. It's, it's a great place to be, great sunshine, supportive environment, and just a, a huge opportunity. So that's why we're focused there. And Marlena, one of the things that we didn't answer particularly so far relative to your question about relative to PV, I think on the one hand, PV produces power for 30% of the day. Uh, so this is effectively a battery that charges itself during those 30% of the day so it can produce the next 60% of the day, if you will. That's the one way to think about it. If you build PV, which is a very cheap source of energy during those 30% of the day only, you have two options. You pair with CSP or you go pair with thousands and thousands of lithium batteries, which utility scale is probably not the right answer. And so whether it be because you need the storage or it be because you need the heat to Craig's point, desalination for the Middle East, hydrogen and fuel production, Middle East and US, or just simply for dispatchable power in the US, especially when combined with our economics in the United States for storage. It's just the two markets that are really in the money for us and, and therefore high priority, apart from the fact that neighbors, as you know, big presence on both sides. So easy to, to leverage our platform, if you will, to help support some of this development. 
And then how does the supply chain for the materials in a CSP plant compare to that of solar panels or wind turbines? Has VAS been impacted by some of the same material shortages? Marlene, it's an excellent question. And the short answer is it's very different. And no, we've not been impacted. So you could call CSP dumb in that all we're using is things like glass and steel and concrete, you know, very very low-cost materials, that's on purpose, right? Because if you use low-cost materials and you're smart about your designs and how you manufacture those, you end up with very low-cost plants. Uh, and that's that's really one of the key things that's right at the core of our design philosophy. We don't have issues around the sort of rare earth and, and some of those constraints. We don't have issues around unethical mining practices to, to source cobalt. We don't have issues around some of the, the labour conditions that some of those issues have been raised around PV panels. So we just don't have those, those challenges. I would say that obviously we've not been immune from some of the spikes that have that have come through on price for a, lot, a number of those commodities in the post-COVID world, but we are seeing all of those issues um, sort of recede back to more normal levels. And so we're not really seeing those challenges. Great. So, you know, we just so happen to have spoken to two other Australian companies that are doing SPAC deals over the past month. So I was interested just to know, I mean, what makes SPACs particularly attractive means of accessing capital rather than, say, going to the ASX or a regular way IPO in the States? From our perspective, the reason we ended up looking offshore for capital was really a couple of things. So the reality for the companies like ours in Australia, where we do need a significant amount of funding, is that the market here, the capital markets are, are relatively shallow. And so it's not uncommon for Aussie companies to end up looking at certainly, you know, North America or Europe or both as sources of, of growth capital. So that's that's the sort of why not a, why not the ASX question. As to why the SPAC, that's an interesting question. So I think were we not to be doing the deal that we're doing with NetSea and most importantly with the neighbours backing, I'm not sure we would end up in a in a SPAC world. But certainly the, the reason that we find this deal attractive um, is because obviously it gives us gives us access to the capital that we need, which is important, but it also comes along with the benefits of being able to work with the neighbours guys. We've signed agreements with them around sharing some services that uh, we're going to be able to access. We're going to be looking at technical cooperation and development of a couple of areas. But then really importantly, there's just massive capacity within the neighbours network. You know, a good example is the JV that neighbours have with Saudi Aramco um, that, that provides really exceptional access into the kingdom. And it's it's those sorts of relationships and, and the capacity that just exists within neighbours global organisation that I think makes that particular partnership interesting. Listen, when we started making investments from neighbours standpoint into energy transitions, minority investments from energy transition a few years ago, we were going under the theory that having a global platform with actually operating assets across the world, engineering capacity, automation, robotics, engineering, software, all of those capacities would be helpful leverage in helping companies in, in new companies and new technologies scale up. Right. We're going under that theory. So far, we've made investments into several companies, because 10 companies in the energy transition space within our ventures group. And the SPAC, the SPAC idea worked, right? Like to some extent, we were able to find a partner that was, was willing to partner with us at a very attractive entry price from a value standpoint because of the access to the platform the scale of platform. We're not three dudes that laughed up an $8 million, right? We are We are not. We, we are a corporate, right? To us, this matters. To us, it's fundamental 
to our strategy for long-term investments into new sources of energy. This is not a fact. We're not, we're not trying to flip economics, if, if that makes sense. There's this fundamental difference as to what we're seeking in some of these investments as a corporate-backed uh, energy spec. And that's actually what I wanted to get into next is, is a little bit of your process in this, just because, of course, Neighbors has its finger on the pulse of, of energy all over the, the globe and, and lots of different means and methods there, too. But just in terms of developing a valuation for vast, you know, given that there, there's plenty of, of listed renewable energy companies, but very few that you know have the kind of focus on CSP. So just how did you go about assessing that valuation? What do you think are some of the key metrics to look at, some of the key di- differentiators there? Responsibility. We have to execute responsibility. Listen, it's much easier for neighbors to get comfortable losing a relatively small investment into a founder than to execute irresponsibly. To us, this is, like I said, it's not really necessarily about uh, what we're doing. It's about the fact that this investment is fundamental to what we want to invest and scale and grow and grow within and through, create strategic options for us to grow in the future. And that starts with things like the seller and us need to be committed, right? There's no money leaving the table. That was important to us. We need to make sure that we're aligned. That's one, right? We need to make sure that the the entry point relative to the size of the addressable market, you know, I invite you to the proxy. To some extent, we feel like it's a very attractive entry point into technology that has a very big market. We wanted to make sure that for the capture of that, one of the key ways of capturing that is making sure that you start. You start small. You start at the right price that your management team is incentivized long-term and not taking money off the table, that the seller is willing to come in with you. All of these things played a part in our decision-making process, and we think all important relative to, to what we did here. Because again, Nick and Marlene, I don't think I can say this more. This, this matters to us because it's part of who we want to keep being and evolve through and grow through and create options for us, right? This is to our business, uh, not not just an investment. If if that if that's fair, oh totally. And and getting to some of the the, the ongoing work with this transaction and, and getting it to a close, you announced at announcement that you'd be working on gathering more capital towards a, a thirty five million dollar pipe. Just how are those discussions going, and and what is the pipe market like these days? So the true pipe market, I think, is still quite challenging. What we've been focusing on is having a number of conversations um, really with strategics around partnerships where they would put fresh capital into VAST and we would agree arrangements with them to whether it be develop, you know, co-develop projects in particular locations or whether it be to develop projects that provide offtake of, of certain things, you know, green methanol, ESAF, uh, those sorts of things. So those conversations are progressing. Unfortunately, Nick, um, I'm not in a position to make any uh, any announcements um, at this stage, but we are, as you can probably understand, pretty keen to do so. Um, and we expect to be in a position to uh, say some more about some of those discussions over the next uh, several months. Uh, Kim, have you got anything else to add in terms of the, the recent discussions you've been having in the market? No, I mean, I agree with you. I think strategic capital is important. I think us and the seller participating is helpful. I continue to hope and expect and believe that back market hopefully starts getting looking better forward than backwards. And over time, some of those dynamics have challenged the market start changing, right? I mean, SPACs are important because especially with something like energy transition, listen, guys, like it matters. Climate matters, right? Like getting to net zero, decarbonizing, all of these matter. And when you're cut into when you're cut into markets that uh, 
get broken for other reasons, it affects companies that really should be uh, expanding their technology and helping all like get to where we actually need to go. And so we're hoping that the market starts getting better. Redemptions are getting better. We're hoping we're hoping for the better. I think the market is uh, starting to feel different, and we're hoping it holds and and it helps us. Out. We'll see. Definitely. And so how much capital does VAS expect that it will need in order to hit its goals with its upcoming projects? Uh, so Marlene, it, it buried in the, um, in the documentation that's uh, been filed with SEC, you'll find there's a condition to the SPAC closing of 50 million net cash. So net of cost, we uh, need to end up with at least 50 million on the balance sheet. It's called the minimum net cash for a reason. That will be very tight to get us to where we need to go. Uh, and certainly I'm targeting securing more capital than that into the structure. The expectation that we are working towards is that the raise that we complete now will be sufficient to allow us to get through the VS1 and SM1 processes to the point where we're then able to trigger FID on subsequent projects and start to bank the margin that comes from the OEM sales of equipment into those subsequent projects. So that's the target is to raise sufficient now that we that we really don't need to go back and tap the markers other than for equity capital into subsequent projects. But that's that's really a separate discussion. That'll be project by project. And there are various options, whether that be equity raised through VAST or sidecar vehicles, or, or frankly, just um, bringing in additional equity partners uh, into those projects because they're just separate project financing opportunities. And I do have to brag on Craig's team. I mean, they've done so much for so many years. I mean, the, guy, the, the team is really, really disciplined on how they spend capital. And that, that obviously, hopefully, reflects to what we can create with the, uh, it is $50 million. And what other benefits do you expect to gain by partnering with the neighbors team specifically? I already mentioned that there's those couple of agreements that are in place around shared services uh, and, and technology development. On the shared services side, just to give you a few examples, I mean, we've already had significant dealings with a number of the different groups within Neighbours. We've had some of their senior uh, patent attorneys down here visiting with us. We've had really significant support in terms of preparing all of the necessary information for the SEC filing. So, so that part's going really well and is very active already. On the technology um, front, the, the Neighbours guys inside their business have got really deep expertise in robotics, um, automation, data handling, central data monitoring. Uh, and a lot of those areas, we've got good skills as well, but there are certain things and, and you know, quite discrete projects where um, there will be opportunities to work with the Neighbours guys and, and leverage some of those capabilities. So they're the two agreements. Um, I think the other thing that's that's really important is the the, the depth of the organisation across the world that Neighbours has, right? So I've mentioned previously um, the Aramco relationship, but the reality, I think, uh, Gemma, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's 15 countries in which, um, which Neighbours operates. You know, at the moment, VAST has operations in one. We're very soon to have operations in Two, but that's a long way from fifteen. So there's there's a significant significant benefit in having a big brother, even though at some point the neighbours guys are going to need to kick their kick their teenager out of the house and we'll need to stand on our own two feet. <laughs> and so now that companies like yours are finding ways of combining multiple types of renewable energy technology into single projects, what's the most exciting thing that you see coming that people aren't talking enough about? Marlena, that's a good question. I think the 
Most interesting opportunity is actually in the green fuel space. The way we think about that, if you if you step away from green fuels and just think about refineries, right? Just a, a standard refinery that we've you know evolved over however many hundred years um, to be an incredibly efficient production mechanism. At its core, what a refinery does is it takes a bunch of chemicals, it takes a bunch of heat and a bunch of electricity, and it uses different reaction vessels that essentially end up being a balance, a chemical balance and an energy balance to produce different stuff. I think a lot of the hydrogen discussion that has occurred so far has really been focused on electricity powering hydrogen. But what we're finding through our work on the methanol project and increasingly as we look at at ESAF is that depending on the various technologies you use inside the refinery itself, you end up with a different requirement for electricity and heat. Our system, because it can deliver heat at a very low cost, Um, What that means is the primary energy source, if you're able to configure the blocks inside the refinery to maximise the amount of of heat that you use um, and minimise the amount of electricity, in total that means that the overall energy cost ends up being lower than it does if you use electricity alone. And so I think that um, as we move forward and as people get more mature and they're thinking about how you make hydrogen and all of its derivatives, I think that solar refinery concept is something that people are going to tweak to. What that means is that you end up with, as you were alluding to, integrated power sources. And typically, we would expect that to look like PV for daytime, CSP for nighttime, batteries to smooth out the PV. And then then you get into questions about whether it also makes sense to incorporate some wind. And then there's some other questions around some of the longer duration storage technologies. And again, some of the neighbours' investments that they've made around transition, um, particularly on the geothermal, there's some interesting stuff to look at there as well. But that primary energy, I think, is the interesting part. 70% roughly of the cost of e-fuels is the energy source. So if you can configure the plant to use cheaper energy, that obviously means you end up with cheaper fuels and a quicker transition. Marlena, that is a super interesting question. And the following statement has nothing to do with BAS, other than the fact that I'm very excited that BAS is a big part of it. The way I think the future ends up being created is you're going to have big energy. And you're going to have, to your point, mixture of PV, CSP, geothermal, wind, and batteries kind of producing at their most efficient time, converting and creating heat, energy, power, hydrogen, support for data centers, fuels, all of the above. And this is going to be, you know, run in the most market efficient way. It's going to be really cool when we start creating and we start combining all of these technologies and producing what the world needs because the world doesn't only need energy. It needs fuel, it needs synthetic fuel, it needs higher, it needs all of the above, right? And I think that's what I see the future looking like. And I'm super excited that some of our geothermal stuff, baths, then all of the above, some of our, our storage investments are hopefully gonna be a big piece of this. And it's really exciting. It's really, really cool.